When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. It's the 24th of August, 1814, in Washington, D.C., then called Washington City. The Capitol building is burning, set alight by some of the 4,500 British troops who have marched on the nation's capital following their victory against U.S. forces at the Battle of Bladensburg the very same day. President James Madison, his government, and the military have fled, but the president's wife, Dolly Madison, remains in the White House. With the British only minutes away, she too escapes in possession of Gilbert Stewart's famous portrait of George Washington. Soon after, the presidential mansion goes up in flames. What might appear to be a decisive blow to the U.S. is in fact only temporary. The British make no attempt to hold the city. The attack was in return for U.S. incursions into Canada, and hostilities continue for another six months. The burning of Washington took place during the War of 1812, which in fact lasted until February 1815, a conflict between the United States and the British and their Native American allies. With the U.S. still a very young nation trying to assert itself on the world stage, this is often called the Second American War of Independence, heralding a new era for a still new nation. Hello, thanks for tuning in to American History Hit. I'm Don Wildman. And on this episode, well, I'm excited. Because if anyone out there is like me, you've moved through life with a fairly vague notion of what the War of 1812 was really about, its causes, its consequences. And understandable though that may be, after all the 1812 falls between the American Revolution and the Civil War in our early education, it's important to realize that we've missed much if we haven't circled back. So think of today as a gift, an opportunity to close that circle. Well, at least prep you to read a good book on the subject. And for this, we have just the expert and just the book. Don Hickey has been called by the New Yorker magazine, the Dean of 1812 Scholarship. He's written eight books on the subject and too many articles in too many journals to mention. But I've been concentrating on his 1989 publication, War of 1812, The Forgotten Conflict, 
which is so much the definitive study it was republished in 2012. Thank you, Don Hickey, for agreeing to talk to a novice today. Uh, You bet. Uh, One comment on my book. I significantly revised that book in 2012 based on a lot of research done by a lot of other scholars as well as myself. So that's the edition I would refer your listeners to. Thank you. It is an engaging read. Every page kind of fills in a blank about what this war was all about. And, you know, if one cares about history, cares about filling in the puzzle of American history, that's always a rewarding experience. And it's important. I mean, broadly speaking, the War of 1812 really put this nation on more certain footing. It's sometimes called the Second War of Independence. Put us on the path of becoming a serious player in the world, not to mention altering the American political landscape. With such important stakes, you call it in that title, The Forgotten War. Why do you think? Well, it gets forgotten. The Revolution and the Civil War were such bigger wars and so much more consequential that uh, I'm really not surprised that the War of 1812 is a forgotten conflict, at least in the United States. Truly forgotten in the United Kingdom. In Canada, however, it's their War of Independence, so it looms pretty large in their history. (laughs) Interesting. Let's remind listeners where the United States is right now. We're only 1812. We're 36 years out from the Declaration of Independence, about 15 from the U.S. Constitution being ratified. And we've recently doubled our size with the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, which is less than a decade before. Still, incidentally, history's greatest real estate coup. In the timeline of a human life, we are but a toddler experiencing growing pains, a toddler with a very big toy box. Toddler, maybe. I I might say pre-adolescent, maybe a very young teenager. A population of the U.S., by the way, was 7.7 million. At the time of the American Revolution, we were close to 3 million. So we had more than double the size of the population. Yeah, I think what people are going to take away, I hope, from this conversation is how ambitiously sophisticated, really, the U.S. was out of the gate. You know, there was a lot going on in this country at this point, economically and and governmentally, for sure. And that kind of emerges through this conversation. Since we've won our independence from Great Britain, there's been a revolution in France and the Napoleonic Wars have been going on for a decade over in in Europe. It's a mess over there. And the U.S., meanwhile, is just trying to figure out how to run itself, you know, and a lot of people how to get rich, which is working out surprisingly well. Trade is booming with Britain, of all places, our main trading partner, mainly in cotton and grain, but with France, too. And as we approach 1812, this has become problematic. How is America now a growing problem for both the British and the French? Well, the problem for us was that in 1793, Britain and France went to war, and they remained at war almost continuously until 1815. And this was not a war confined to Europe, but it was waged around the world, and we had a large and growing international commerce and got caught in the middle. And so I would argue that the central problem for American policymakers in this period, and that would be the Federalists who controlled the national government in the 1790s, and the Republicans thereafter, the Jeffersonian Republicans, a central policy issue they had to grapple with was how could a second-rate power like the United States protect its rights, preserve its neutrality, and promote its other interests in a world that was at war? This was the million-dollar question that our policymakers faced throughout the period. Part of the difficulty in understanding these issues of the war It's because there's not a lot of common reference points for us today. I mean, these are early pre-industrial days in America, pre-railroad. We're still horse and buggies. It's all shipping and agriculture. 
I mean, I think I learned about this in fifth, maybe seventh grade. I don't know. And the thing I remember is maritime issues. The impressment of sailors by the British was really our point to declare war. But that could not have been the only reason that a brand new nation declares war on the world's preeminent military again for the second time. Well, I would argue the two leading causes of the war were, number one, the British orders in consul, which were executive orders issued by the British government that restricted our trade with the continent of Europe, and under the authority of which the British seized uh, four or 500 American merchant vessels and condemned them and their cargoes. The other issue was the one you mentioned, impressment. The Royal Navy was chronically understaffed, and with 500 to 1,000 ships in service, it stopped neutral merchant vessels on the high seas to reclaim British subjects. The problem was you couldn't tell the difference between a British subject and and an American citizen. The language differences were not as pronounced, and as a result, six to 9,000 American citizens got caught in the Royal Navy's dragnet between 1803 and 1812. And that problem of impressment was not only a significant uh, threat to our sovereignty, but a real hardship on those American citizens who found themselves in British service, subjected to all the horrors of British naval discipline, enforced with a cat of nine tails, and fighting a war that was not their own. Well, those were the two leading causes of the war. Now, here's the problem that I think a lot of Americans, even at the time, but especially later on, who look back at this war, did not understand. We were a second-rate power seeking to force a truly great power in the midst of a titanic struggle to change policies that that nation considered vital to its war effort. And the only way we could put pressure on Great Britain with our own tiny navy was by invading and seizing Canada. In principle, the notion was we'd hold it for ransom on the maritime issues. Give up the orders and consul and impressment or we're going to keep Canada. But the administration never actually clarified its position on Canada. So it is entirely possible that if we had conquered it, we might have kept it and, you know, surrendered the maritime issues. The problem here was, in my studied opinion, the American conquest of Canada in this period was beyond our means. This war was not winnable. And therefore, at least uh, from a policy perspective, was a huge mistake. All of this that you speak of is happening against a backdrop of political transition in America, political turmoil even in Washington. As power is shifting from the Federalists of Washington and Hamilton H., the strong federal government, to a more the Democratic Republicans, the more of a Jeffersonian Republic transition. And Madison, who is the president at this time who believes strongly in states' rights, in a weaker federal government governing the nation. And all of this will unfold throughout the century in profound and deadly ways, but it's sort of the beginning of what's happening now. Well, this was our first party system, and I would argue that Americans were about as deeply divided then as they are today. We sometimes think today that our situation is unique, but there are a half dozen periods in our history when we were pretty deeply divided. As an aside, the only time we couldn't resolve our differences peacefully was in 1861, and that's when we had our Civil War. The Jeffersonian Republicans, I think, overrated our ability to extract concessions from the great powers of Europe, particularly Great Britain. They tried a series of economic sanctions between 1860 and 1812, the most ambitious of which was Jefferson's embargo, which simply cut off America's export trade. 
This had a catastrophic effect on the American economy and an equally bad effect on government revenue, which was almost entirely dependent on uh, taxing trade. When that didn't work, the Republicans went to war in 1812. But I think they're, uh, again, they were deluded into thinking that we could force the British to give up practices, uh, which the British simply were not willing to surrender. Now, as it happens, Great Britain uh, repealed the Orders in Council about the time we declared war. And since that was the leading cause of the war, the British actually thought this would bring the war to an end. They released ships they were holding in uh, British ports and suspended their military operations in North America, believing that the United States would now agree to peace. But instead, we insisted that the British give up impressment, something they were never going to do. And as a result, the war continued for another two and a half years. So sprawling stuff, and we're mentioning things along the way here that we're going to return back to in this conversation. But I want to also remind listeners that we're dealing with this doubled size of the nation here. The Louisiana Territory comes along in 1803, and suddenly there's this brand new factor of our society, which is dealing with the indigenous nations, which had previously been used to dealing with the British and the French, of course, over centuries, who were here for mostly mercantile purposes. They didn't want their land. We did. You know, that was on the horizon as far as certainly the Democratic Republicans. It was time to come to terms with how this was going to work out. How much is this part of the War of 1812? Well, it's an important part. Because uh, Canada had only a, a population of about a half million, and the British were tied up in Europe, they lined up Indian allies for the defense of uh, Canada. And the great uh, Shawnee leader, Tecumseh, developed a confederacy of Indians in the Old Northwest that was allied to Great Britain in the War of 1812. Now, the United States effectively shattered that Indian uh, confederacy when it killed Tecumseh in the Battle of the Thames in uh, October of 1813. Uh, the Indians did continue to fight on the periphery for another couple of years, but I think effectively they were defeated in the Old Northwest. And meanwhile, Andrew Jackson won a series of battles defeating the Creeks in the Old Southwest. So when the dust cleared at the end of the War of 1812 and the British abandoned their Indian allies, not simply for this war, but permanently, it meant they were now at our mercy. And as a result, the door swung wide open to American expansion in both the Old Northwest and the Old Southwest. The Indians were the big losers in this war. So you see what a broad sketchbook we're on here. I mean, we're talking about kind of how big the nation is at this point, never mind the policy ideas behind how we're surviving as a nation. Let's circle back to one that we've mentioned several times already, the orders of council. This is a term we run into a lot at this point of the 19th century, this early point. Explain to me what this was. Well, this was a part of an Anglo-French commercial war. After the British won the Battle of Trafalgar in 1804, they were undisputed mistress of the seas. And France, even with its continental allies, could not challenge Great Britain on the high seas. Not long after, in 1805-6, Napoleon emerged with a great victory at Austerlitz against his enemies on the continent of Europe, and that left France supreme on the continent. So by 1806 or so, you have this great war in which the two antagonists cannot get at one another. It's like a battle between a tiger and a shark. 
they can't engage one another. And so France decided to target Britain's trade. We got caught in the middle. The British retaliated. And thus we found ourselves threatened, our international trade, which was very lucrative, threatened by both of the great European powers as they sought to get at one another. So who issues the orders? Well, technically, the orders in council were issued in the name of the king, but it was actually the British government under the Tories who issued the orders in council between 1807 and 1809, which sharply curtailed American trade with the continent of Europe. But that was in retaliation to France's continental decrees issued a little bit earlier, which closed the continent of Europe to any trade from Great Britain or any uh, ships that had stopped in Great Britain on their way to the European continent. So that you got, you got this major trade war and we're caught in the middle. Right. And the upshot is embargoes, basically, right? I mean, you've got our primary partners both embargoing each other's markets for us. Yes. So suddenly we're caught in the middle of a European conflict, not being able to sell our goods or buy goods, I guess, but mainly sell our goods because we're a huge source of cotton and grain for these places. And that's our survival. Well, yes. Now, it's worth pointing out that uh, even though it looked like American trade with the European continent was impossible under these countervailing uh, restrictions, it either would violate the French continental decrees if you sailed uh, through Great Britain or the British Orders and Council, if you sailed directly to the continent, there were still opportunities for lucky and shrewd American merchants to make a profit. The Baltic remained open to American trade. The Eastern Mediterranean remained open to American trade. And after uh, Spain uh, joined Great Britain's uh, coalition around 1807, the Iberian Peninsula remained open to American trade. And there was a large British army there that had to be fed. And we were happy to send supply ship after supply ship to the Iberian Peninsula to feed those British troops. In addition to these commercial opportunities, there are other ways one might try to circumvent these countervailing British and French restrictions. Uh, some merchants carried dual papers, a legitimate set of papers and a fake set of papers. And depending on who stopped you on the high seas or in a port, you tried to fool them. Now, the danger of this was everybody knew the game and British and French search parties always looked for that second set of, uh, of papers because if they could find it, that was prima facie evidence of fraud and the ship and cargo would be condemned. Uh, the other thing that, that American merchants could do was engage in bribery. Now, it was tough to uh, bribe the British, uh, but a lot easier to bribe the French, and especially if you happen to be in a, a French-controlled port on the continent, which was usually run by locals. So you might have an American merchant show up that passed through England with a cargo of Virginia tobacco in, say, Amsterdam. A Dutch was under uh, France's control, but you had local Dutch port officials running the show there. And you might have the Dutch port officials say, well, it looks to me, Captain, like you're in violation of the Continental Decrees. You stopped in London on your way here. So it is likely that your ship and cargo are going to be forfeit. Well, the American captain reaches into his pocket. They did have pockets in those short pants they wore and puts uh, some coins on the desk and goes over and looks out the window and says, ah, Mr. Port Official, what a glorious day it is in Amsterdam. And the Dutch port official looks at the table and at the coins there, scoops them off, puts them in his pocket and says, uh, Mr. Captain, I see that all is in order. You may unload your, your cargo. And everybody's happy with this. The British are happy because you complied with the orders in council. The Dutch official is happy because he's got the jingle of coins in his pocket. Dutch burgers are happy because they have access 
to the uh, fine uh, tobacco from the Virginia to feed their nicotine fit. And the French are happy because they have no idea what just went down. Yes. These are the gray areas of policy that uh, make the world go round. Impressment. We've mentioned this as well. I want to define what this means. I grew up thinking, oh, that means kidnapping. It's a much more subtle practice. Well, interesting, the the Jeffersonian Republicans did often refer to it as kidnapping, and that's not out of line. The British Navy, which had uh, 500 ships in service in 1812, was about probably about 20 percent understaffed on its warships. And the rule in Great Britain was once a British subject, always a British subject. So they maintained the right to remove British subjects, even if they'd become Americanized citizens, although very few had or excuse me, naturalized citizens. It just wasn't worth the uh, effort. But the British Navy reserved the right to stop American merchant vessels on the high seas, muster the crew, and they would interview the crewmen to see whether they were British or American. And uh, sometimes they were pretty easily able to figure it out. They'd ask the crewman, well, where were you born? Oh, I was born in uh, Baltimore, sir. And what state is that in? That's in the state of Boston, sir. That's where I come from. Bosons may take that man and put him on our ship. But there were other times when the British didn't care. You'd get a junior midshipman, 15, 16 years old, feeling his oats in charge of a press gang on board an American merchant vessel. And he would just say, you, you, you and you are British subjects and will be serving on my ship. And some poor American citizen says, but sir, I'm an American citizen. Bosons, mate. Give that man 12 stripes across his back for speaking disrespectfully to his majesty's officer. And you're stuck. There was no way a little merchant vessel could face down a British warship. About all the uh, American merchants could do, they were required by law to report any impressments in the United States. U.S. government uh, might try to acquire evidence that you were indeed an American citizen. And if they did, they would send it to London. And if London felt this uh, evidence was compelling, they would order your release. That could be two or three years down the road. And in the meantime, you're confined to a British warship. And the British rule was if you accepted the king's bounty, the enlistment bounty, didn't matter whether you had been impressed or not, you were now a volunteer and they weren't going to release you. There are two factoids that jump out to me. One, the method of the madness here, because one of the facts was so many young men in Britain were coming to the New World, to America, to, you know, chase their dreams. And they were siphoning off those uh, young sailors that would be available for the Navy, who was in the process of fighting wars in Europe. So part of it was just resupplying their men from American ships who were coming out. The other thing I read about was the fact that some people could actually see British ships sitting offshore waiting for American ships to come out. I mean, it was that kind of pipeline, right? Well, a couple of observations on this. It was pretty easy. As our merchant fleet expanded rapidly with our international trade in this period, largely because we're in a war-torn world, there are just a lot of commercial opportunities, a lot of money to be made. It wasn't hard to get British tars, as they might be called, because they work with tar a lot, to uh, sign on to American uh, merchant vessels. The pay was better than the Royal Navy. The working conditions were better, no cat of nine tails. And the tour of duty was shorter. If you signed up for service on an American merchant vessel, you signed up for a limited tour, maybe a voyage from the United States to the British West Indies or to Great Britain or maybe to the Far East. In the British Navy, there was no limited tour. 
once you were in service, you weren't released until the Navy demobilized, unless you were taken out in a bag or with a serious wound or injury as a result of your service. So it was very easy to attract British tars to fill out American crews just because the conditions were so much better. I'll be back with more American history after this short break. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Many Americans felt were tired of being bullied. That was a big kind of theme of life in those days. And we'd beaten the British once. It was time to get rid of these guys and chase them out of Canada. There was a lot of boisterous noise about this stuff. How does this war actually begin? When is the first shot fired? Well, we declared war on June 18th, 1812. And I think there was a brief naval engagement off the coast of North America. I've quite, I've forgotten where it was. It might have been off the coast of Massachusetts a few days later. And a British warship escaped. It, w- it wasn't much of an engagement, just an exchange of fire. That ship made it to Halifax and said, hey boys, I think we're at war now. And word spread across Canada. And the Canadians actually had a, uh, their fur traders had a, a system for spreading this kind of information quickly, an express system. So the word spread to Western Canada a lot faster than it did to the United States. And there really wasn't a major battle until a couple of months in into the war because we had marched a military force up to Detroit. And I think that uh, Detroit surrendered on the 16th of August, if memory serves me right, American army was defeated. It's a story in and of itself. The commanding general there, a guy named William Hull, had lost his nerve. He was old, incapacitated, and the British threatened an Indian massacre, and he said, okay, we surrender. But uh, you have to remember the pace of communication in uh, the age of sail and the age of uh, wagons and horses was a lot slower than it is today. So uh, everything moves at a much more deliberate pace in those days. Yeah, much of the military action takes place in the Northwest 
territories, the Great Lakes, but all, all up, up and down the Atlantic seaboard. I, I've always thought of it as a maritime war. That's not correct, is it? Uh, no, we couldn't uh, match the British on the high seas. Uh, we did win some single ship engagements that they were strategically unimportant. And we did threaten their trade, but the British convoy system was actually pretty effective in keeping their trade together in spite of uh, the activities of American privateers. I think it's worth remembering how widespread this war actually was in North America. Uh, by my count, there were something like nine different theaters of operation three or four on the northern frontier with Canada, maybe three along the Atlantic seaboard, Maine, the Chesapeake, and Georgia. And then there was the Gulf Coast. And then there was another front uh, around St. Louis that uh, primarily involved us with Great Britain's Indian allies. So it was a, a war that, in a way, was fought all around the periphery of North America, or at least of the United States. The famous events of the War of 1812 kind of happened toward the latter part, and we'll get to those in a moment. The earlier is really about Canada, isn't it? It's this mission that if we get Canada, we can hold that hostage, as you said. Did we make progress in that department at all? Well, a little bit of progress in 1813. Uh, Oliver H. Perry won a great naval victory against the British squadron on Lake Erie, and whoever controlled the lakes controlled the surrounding land. The British found after that defeat they could no longer supply their forces on the Detroit frontier and a huge uh, number of Indian allies and their dependents. And so they withdrew to the interior. William Henry Harrison chased after them with an army of uh, about 3,000 strong, and caught up with them about 75 miles east of Detroit. The result was the Battle of the Thames in which the United States defeated a smaller British force and its Indian allies, and in the process, killed the great Indian leader Tecumseh. Now that meant that thereafter, that part of uh, North America was under American control. That victory was just too far west to shape the outcome of the war, too far removed from the centers of power and population in uh, eastern Canada, mainly Montreal and Quebec, uh, to bring us any closer to the conquest of Canada. So we did enjoy success in the west, but it wasn't going to uh, bring Canada into our hands. I always wonder about these earlier wars, how strategic those leaders were being in terms of creating and forming the nation. One of the great objectives of the North was access to the St. Lawrence River, which is, you know, leads into the Great Lakes. How much were those Washington leaders, the American leaders, thinking of the future of the nation in fighting this war? Were there objectives they could see if they win, it's going to be better for us? Or was it just a reactionary conflict? Well, you have to remember, we had no war planning agency in the War Department at the time. And we kind of developed our strategy on the fly a few months before the war. And they talked about how best to uh, seize Canada. And they came up with a three-pronged attack in the west along the Niagara frontier and then along uh, the Lake Champlain axis, which led to uh, Montreal. And the idea was we'd launch these three invasions simultaneously and they would succeed in conquering Canada. I don't think that was uh, at all possible for us to achieve. Beyond that, there just wasn't a lot of thought put into how we were going to accomplish these three missions. The logistics of waging war in the North American wilderness were just insurmountable obstacles. It was even harder for the British because they had to ship everything across the Atlantic. But at least they had a system in place because of their long-term wars 
on the continent of Europe, and they had the money to support their logistical operations. But we had all kinds of problems, uh, even though uh, our centers of production were a lot closer than uh, the British had to contend with. Let's talk about James Madison, his outlook on this war and and where he falls in the pantheon of, of American presidents. Well, he was a great man in a lot of ways, but he was a retiring scholarly type guy. Wasn't, I don't think, well cut out to be a war leader. One of his great attributes is he resisted the urge of most war leaders to crush any domestic opponents. That has happened in almost every war we fought. How do we silence the opponents of this war? That's what an administration headed by a strong president often thinks about. Madison didn't think that way. He understood that if you're going to believe in freedom, it's got to extend to your domestic opponents as well as your followers. But he was a weak war leader. He tolerated opposition and disloyalty in his cabinet. He was slow to change his generals in the field. He just wasn't a war leader that you need for aggressive action in a war. Yeah, his legacy really comes down through the U.S. Constitution, which he is a huge uh, architect of. I think of archetypal moments, sort of set pieces, when I think of the, the War of 1812. And I'm being random in my thinking here, but the USS Constitution, which people know because it sits in harbor in Boston to this day, plays a big part in the symbol of this war. Am I right? Absolutely. The Constitution had four successful cruises. It uh, defeated uh, several British ships in actions on the high seas. And while, as I mentioned, these were strategically unimportant, they gave a great boost to American morale because we were able to face down, at least in these single ship engagements, the most powerful uh, uh, Navy the history had ever seen on the high seas. So that was a great boost to morale. And uh, I think the USS Constitution emerged as a kind of symbol of the rising America. And it was almost uh, dismantled in the late 19th century, but uh, they kept it intact. And I think it was uh, FDR who restored it to the U.S. Navy. So to this day, or at least now, it is part of the U.S. Navy, but it's basically a tourist attraction. It's been restored to what it was like in 1812. You can tour it and see what a mid-sized vessel, warship, a frigate looked like. It's part of uh, the big legacy of this war. We got a lot of symbols and sayings and images that helped us define who we were. And the Constitution was just one of those. Sure. What happens in 1813 to 14 is what people mostly remember, these big events that happened, especially, of course, the attack on Fort McHenry. I'm plucking this out of, a, you know, a vastness of this war's story, but bring us to that moment and give me the context of what then becomes the beginning of the national anthem. Well, the character of this war changed fundamentally in uh, the uh, spring of 1814 when Napoleon was defeated in Europe, because that meant the British could devote their military and naval assets to this kind of pesky sideshow, the American war across the Atlantic. So this uh, ceases to become a war in which we're likely to conquer Canada or even try to conquer it, and it becomes a war in defense of American soil. The British take the offensive in the last year of the war. They invade Upper New York, they invade the Chesapeake, they invade at Georgia, and they launch a major campaign on the Gulf Coast. Now, that Chesapeake campaign represents uh, one of the low and one of the high points for the United States because the British occupied Washington, uh, burned some of the public buildings, 
and then forced the government to flee for about a, a week or so. And that becomes really the low point for the United States in this war. An enemy occupies our capital and burns the White House, uh, the Capitol buildings, and several other public buildings. But that's followed several weeks later by the successful defense of Fort McHenry, which prevents a British army, which was threatening Baltimore from getting naval support and compelling Baltimore to submit. One can visit Fort McHenry these days and understand the complexities of that naval battle or that siege, really. It's a fascinating strategy they were following. I I learned that when I did a TV show there. Can you explain how that worked? I think it's a really interesting examination of British naval techniques. Well, the British had lined up a force of maybe 4,500 for an assault on Baltimore. But they found that the local general there, a guy named Sam Smith, had called out 10 or 15,000 militia, and they were dug in on the east and northern side of Baltimore. And so it was going to be a, a tough uh, engagement if the British were likely to assault. It wasn't going to be like uh, Washington, where they defeated a largely militia band in the Battle of Bladensburg and then marched into the capital city, which was now wide open. So what uh, the British commander asked the Navy to do was to sail into the harbor and soften up the American lines. But in order to do that, the Navy had to silence the guns of Fort McHenry, which uh, protected the entrance to the harbor. The British sent a squadron of bomb and rocket ships up the uh, river, and they bombarded Fort McHenry for a little over 24 hours straight, but were uh, unable to do enough damage to compel it to submit. And so uh, that uh, squadron withdrew. The British naval commander told the army commander, we're just not going to be able to help you out. And the army commander withdrew and Baltimore was saved. The British ships basically line up in a horseshoe and they sort of sail in and each at at its given time when their broadside is facing the fort, fire off their guns and then sail onward. And it's sort of this conveyor belt of armament coming in to shoot. And, And that's how this goes on for such a long period of time throughout the night, which is, of course, important because somewhere in the midst of all of this, famously, the lawyer Francis Scott Key comes to negotiate on behalf of a client and spends the night on one of these ships during this great siege that was going on. The British uh, squadron of bomb and rocket ships realized in their initial fire that they were a little bit too close to the big coastal guns of Fort McHenry. But if they drew back a little bit, Fort McHenry would be within their range, but they would be beyond the range of Fort McHenry's guns. And so thereafter pretty much had a free hand during that uh, bombardment. But they just couldn't compel Fort McHenry to submit. Ultimately, the damage was fairly minor. Now, Francis Scott Key was a 30-year-old lawyer in Georgetown, and uh, the British had uh, taken a doctor by the name of Beans as a prisoner. Francis Scott Key goes to Madison's administration and says, let me travel to the British fleet under a flag of truce, see if I can get Beans released. And so he goes uh, actually with an American official, a, a guy who handled British POWs, under a flag of truce to the British fleet, which was down in Chesapeake Harbor, about nine miles away from uh, Fort McHenry. The British say, okay, we're going to release Beans, but you guys can't leave until after this engagement at Fort McHenry is over because we don't want you sharing any vital intelligence. So the true ship is held under the guns of a British warship about nine miles away from Fort McHenry. And Francis Scott Key, who, by the way, was a Federalist, most of whom opposed the war, paces the ship all night long and watches the bombardment. And in the morning, he first of all sees the British bomb and rocket ships come back down to the mouth of the river. 
that's a good sign. If they had prevailed, they would probably not be there. And then at 9 a.m., he hears Yankee Doodle being played nine miles away at the fort as they raise the big garrison flag, uh, 32 by 40 feet, the Fort McHenry flag. Actually, it didn't fly during the uh, bombardment. It was too pricey to risk during a bombardment. But after it was over, they sent it up. And I think he gets out a spyglass because I don't think he could have seen it with the negative eye. He sees the flag go up. And he's moved to write this uh, song, which initially is entitled Defense of Fort McHenry. It's uh, published as a broadside a couple days later in Baltimore, uh, subsequently renamed the Star-Spangled Banner, becomes a very popular patriotic air in the 19th century. And then in 1931, largely as a result of a movement headed by John Philip Sousa, Congress names it the National Anthem, and it has been our anthem ever since. There you go. A truly inspiring story. One of the other figures that uh, emerges, and th- this is the reason that it's important to understand this war, is that there's really big figures involved here. Andrew Jackson, toward the latter part, well, all the way through the war and even back to the American Revolution, he was involved in the military. and so, But particularly at the end, he's made famous by the Battle of New Orleans, which is really at the very tail end of the war. His emergence and his heroic status at the end of this conflict really launches him into the big time in terms of American politics, eventually becoming president, and now on our $20 bill, still to this day. Explain his strategy in New Orleans and what was so bold about his endeavor there. Jackson was really a great military leader. And unlike some of the antiquated generals on the northern frontier, he led from the front. Now, the advantage of defending New Orleans was it was about 80 miles up from the Gulf Coast. It was impossible for the Royal Navy to provide adequate protection. You just couldn't get up the Mississippi because of the turns and the American forts there. So you had a British Army basically acting without any naval support. And Jackson had a very strong earthwork established south of New Orleans, running from the Mississippi River to an impenetrable Cypress Swamp. And the British had... uh, get through that. And they just couldn't. It was about 20 feet wide, solid earth, and maybe, depending on where you were, four to eight feet tall. And the Americans just sat behind those earthworks and fired artillery and uh, small arms at the advancing British who were wide open and exposed. And the result was a British military catastrophe. They suffered a couple of thousand casualties in maybe 45 minutes. Jackson's own casualties on the line, 13. Probably the most lopsided defeat any British army has ever sustained. Don, how does this war end? The United States is thrown on the defensive after the British uh, made peace with their enemies in Europe in the spring of 1814 and can now concentrate on what had been a sideshow to them. And the British really had the United States on the run in 1814. They took the offensive. We were didn't have uh, enough men in service to stay the course in the war. We we're running out of money. The government actually defaulted on the national debt in 1814. There was a kind of secessionist movement in New England. Federalists were fed up with this war and were talking about leaving the Union. There were just all kinds of problems that the U.S. faced. And it was now prepared to end the war without any agreement on impressment. And I would say by late 1814, with their military operations, their offensive operations not going as well as they'd hoped, the British were now ready for peace as well. You have to remember the British were war-weary. 
They've been waging war for 20 years. So you reach the point where both sides just wanted to bring this war to an end. And that's what led to the Treaty of Ghent, which provided for returning to the status quo antebellum, the state that existed before the war, as if the war had never been fought. Is that true, in your opinion? Did anything get accomplished? There's an old saw that everybody's happy with the outcome of this war. The Americans are happy because they think they won. The Canadians are happier because they know they won. And the British are happiest of all because they've forgotten all about the war. There's some truth in that. The British certainly did forget about this war. The battle they remembered from 1815 was, of course, uh, Waterloo. No one in Great Britain remembered New Orleans, nor did they care to remember New Orleans. But in America, the story was very different. We focused on the victories late in the war, particularly at New Orleans. And the myth developed that we had won the war, that we had prevented the British from trying to recolonize the United States, which was pure fantasy. The British had no interest in that. And that we had successfully defeated the conqueror of Napoleon and the mistress of the seas. That was the myth of the American victory. So you can argue that Americans kind of think this war vindicated their sovereignty. And we get all these symbols and sayings out of the war that helped define us. Uncle Sam starts being used as a reference to the U.S. government. We get the national anthem. We have the great flag at Fort McHenry, which survives today at the Smithsonian. We have sayings like, don't give up the ship. We have met the enemy and they are ours. And we have symbols like the great Andrew Jackson and the Battle of New Orleans, all of which help, I think, the American people kind of define what their country is all about and what it means to be an American. Now, by the same token, the Canadians can look at this as a great war. They didn't think much about it until after the Confederation was established in 1867, and they essentially become independent, at which point they look back and conclude that this was really their war of independence because they had staved off this attempt of the United States to conquer and annex Canada. For the British, it's an important turning point because it marks a fundamental change in their foreign policy. When the war is over, they still have to wrestle with the problem of how do you defend Canada from an aggressive, expansionistic, and growing power to the south. They concluded that lining up Indian allies just didn't work, and so they abandoned their Indian allies permanently and decide the best way to protect Canada is to accommodate the United States, try to avoid trouble with the United States, hoping American expansion will proceed to the west and to the south and not to the north. And it turns out this works out pretty well. There are some rough periods and some war scares in Anglo-American affairs in the 19th century, but by 1871, uh, most of the issues have either disappeared or resolved in an important Anglo-American treaty that year, the Treaty of Washington. And the upshot of this is by 1890, there's a genuine Anglo-American accord that turns into co-belligerency in World War I and a full-fledged alliance in World War II that persists to this day. So I would argue the British foreign policy of accommodation was vindicated over the next 175 years. The book that I like to read of your many is The War of 1812, The Forgotten Conflict. The author is Don Hickey. Folks, it's a very important thing. Uh, this is the beginning of really the expansion of the United States to not understand the basic building blocks of that, much of which come out of the War of 1812, not least of which is the figures involved, Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, these future leaders who are going to really figure out how the country runs over the next several decades coming up to the Civil War. All that is in this story, and you can find it in this good man's work. Thank you so much for joining us, Don Hickey. I hope I meet you again. Well, my pleasure. Thank you, Don. This has been great fun. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of American History Hit. I hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to like, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.